There wasn't enough room in Toyland to escape the terror that rocked Baby's cradle. I notice you call him Baby, and the case history doesn't show any other name. What is his real name? Just Baby. To Baby, life was not a giant playpen. It was a living hell. We all feel better. We all feel better in the dark. DJ Ferguson H Y. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the new greatest show on earth. Better in the dark. Yeah. Concession stand now, get your popcorn, get the drinks, get the food. You don't want to miss a second because the show is about to start. And welcome to the show with shows better in the dark slash dope audio. Ready to start it? Reality to part it? Podcast excellence, no doubt about it. Uh, we got movies, uh, we got TV, we got Tom and D. Get where you need to be so you can digest all the words they digress. Better get paper ready for the viewers they present. Uh, DJ, uh, Ferguson, Brooklyn in the house, dream team haven't sent, but they will bust your ass if your shit come back. Call a living color cause our homies don't play that. Facts only, fashion your facsimiles, but ain't no power greater than the BITD. So you can get with this, or you can get with that. Just know this show is where it's always Welcome at. Welcome to the big show, brought to you from the big K, home of Jay-Z and Biggie. What's really left to say to the burrows? It's time for better in the dark. Yeah, got time on my left, Derek on my right, bust a head, serving notice all damn night. Tell your baby mamas, it's time for better in the dark. Yeah, and we out. And until we get back in touch with you. So watch that movie. Right, Devin? So watch that movie. <laughs> We're going back in time. Way, way back. Way back. We are troglodytes. With a... Caveman, hippies, <laughs> love bees, acid rock, dude, platform shoes, the Vietnam War, <laughs> yeah, man, summer love, baby, just mellow out, yep. that's mellow right, out. and what are we going to talk about, death and destruction, death, destruction, mayhem, necrophilia, murder, rape, sodomy, mm-hmm. drug addiction, alcoholism, bell bottoms, Bell bottom. Oh, oh, yeah. oh man, the real terror. <laughs> this is it, folks. What has become an honored tradition here at Better in the Dark? As I like to put it, the Summer Slam of our calendar. <laughs> One of the episodes that comes out every year that people always wait for. We're talking, of course, about the Obscure Horror Movies episode. First, of course, keeping with the tradition we started three years ago, we have on the line the maven of Dread Media, the patriarch of the Better in the Dark First family, Mr. Des Reddick. <laughs> and we decided... Hey guys, always glad to be back. And we decided to do a theme this yes. year. You know, you actually guys decided des- to do a theme. Yes. <laughs> the way this worked, we usually start planning this around July. I said, how did this happen? What, the 70s? I had already picked one movie from the 70s. Right. Des decided to choose two movies from the 70s, one of which I thought was the film that became my other choice. And I said, is that the one where this happens? He goes, no, that one is called this. Yeah. Then we said to you, we're doing 70s. All of a sudden, you yeah. guys pop. Yeah, we're doing 70s. I said, yeah. oh, great. And actually, one of my original movies was from the 70s, yeah. The Incubus. Right. The other one was 1969. But that was okay because... Yeah, they, we could have done it. 
Now we do it because thanks to you good people out there, we are actually having to work at finding <laughs> obscure movies that really fit the bill of being obscure. I had to go to YouTube for one of the movies mm-hmm. I chose this uh, year. Yeah. Uh, I did I. You made me work, Tom. <laughs> so that means that there are at least two films. I did find one of your films on YouTube. Might be the same film. Okay. I did not find the other one. Both of yours are available on Netflix. Both streaming. of mine are available right now for streaming on Netflix. Other one I could only find. Get this. Remember when Shout Factory put out the vintage episodes of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark? Sure. That was the only place yeah, I yeah. could find the other film wow. that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, we're really having to work. Folks, when we started this, practically any movie we picked was obscure. <laughs> Nobody heard about it now. But now, thanks to outlets such as Netflix and Crackle and various movie channels, there's very little that is actually obscure now. People are finding movies at a drop of that. Right. Like The Baby. I did not know about this. Somebody else told me about yeah. it. They said, yeah, man, listen, you got to watch this. And I watched it yesterday, unfortunately, when the director of the movie, Ted Post, passed, passed away. On. Yeah. Do we want to go into this now? Yeah, Since you're bringing it up, do you want to start? No, I want to save the baby for later on. Okay. And as usual, in creeping with tradition, we let our guest host okay. go first. So, Des, which one do you want to tell us about? Well, there's a bit of a story behind my first one here. I had my eye on a different film for a very long time. It's a movie called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's a movie I saw when I was a little kid and always wanted it on DVD. I looked for it, looked for it, and it never came out. I couldn't even find a VHS copy for the longest time. And then I downloaded it online, which is not something I do often, but if it's impossible to find the film, I'll try and doubt. I did, and the picture was so small and shitty that I just mm. deleted it and forgot about it. Right. <laughs> and then the previously mentioned Shout Factory released a Blu-ray DVD combo, I think late last year. So I grabbed it and then I just couldn't wait. So I ended up watching it and covering it on the show. Right. But that movie is a great movie if you haven't seen it. It's directed by Charles Pierce and on the DVD of the Blu-ray DVD combo, the only special feature on the DVD itself Mm -hmm. is a second Charles Pierce film and it's called The Evictors and it came out in 1979. Did Charles Pierce also do the Boggy Creek films? Yeah, he did Boggy Creek. He did The Outlaw Josie Wales. Clearly, he's most known for The Outlaw Josie Wales. He did Coffee, too. Oh, okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Or he might have just written coffee. I'm not right. really sure about that. But no, yeah, he directed it. He's got his fingers in, in a lot of different pots. There's some relatively, I wouldn't call the Boggy Creek films famous, but they're sort of cult popular. The Evictors is a film that I've only ever seen the poster of. I watched it and I thought, shit, this is going to be a great movie to bring out. Right. So got my consolation film because I broke my pact on the town that dreaded sundown. The Evictors starts off with a flashback of this family inside this house. They just refuse to pay the bank. The bank comes after them with a bunch of police and they end up gunning down the house with the people inside, but the people start shooting back and, well, I think they gun down the house because the people shot in the first place. They have this big gunfight. I think it's back in the late 20s when that happens, maybe? I'm trying to remember when this film's set. But then we 
sort of fast forward to the mid-40s. World War II is on. We have a couple played by Michael Parks and Jessica Harper. Ooh, Michael Parks. Two great uh, 70s actors there. They buy this house, and as the film goes on, we get flashbacks to periods of time in between the 20s and the 40s when other people who buy the house are being killed by a mysterious stalker. Uh, Well, the stalker comes and visits the couple. Their house is sort of sieged by this guy, and they have to try and protect themselves, and they have to try and survive. And that's the whole plot of the film. It's a pretty good one. I won't say that it's a great film, but it's pretty fun. It's more fun for the performances. Michael Parks is always great. Jessica Harper Mm -hmm. is fantastic. She of Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, And Nick Moore is in this one, too. And then Suspiria. In Suspiria, yeah. What really impressed me is, do you guys know the name Dennis Fimple? No, does he owe us money? I have this sneaking suspicion that when you tell me, I'll be like, oh, yeah. Does he owe us money? For some reason, I want to say Giant Spider Invasion. You know what? He might have been in that. (laughs) But anyway, Dennis Fimple is one of those guys. Mm-hmm. And if you saw him, you would exactly know who I'm talking about. He usually plays sort of a decrepit old man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's done a shitload of stuff. He's got 101 entries as an actor on IMDb. A lot of TV. I'm trying to think what would be the most recognizable shoot. I can't really find. Well, he was Sunfish in the 70s King Kong. Damn. And you would think a guy named Sunfish would be pretty distinctive. You would think so, <laughs> wouldn't you? Yeah. If you just Google the name Dennis Fimple, you're going to see him and you're going to go, uh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know that uh, guy. Yeah, and I've always known him as sort of a decrepit, overweight old dude with a weird face. But in this film, he's this tall, strapping, scary-looking fella. So I actually quite liked seeing him in a completely different light. I think the film is shot really well. Charles Pierce operates really well in period. And there's a lot of different periods. There's 20s, there's 30s, there's 40s in this movie. And they're all represented well. The fashion, the cars, they're all done really, really well. And I just appreciate his sort of craft more than I do the movie. But it's still a pretty fun flick. Plus, you know, you get it on DVD, you get The Town That Dreaded Sundown as well. Let me ask you something about the 70s since we are talking about 70s movies. There's one thing that I've noticed about these movies, and I'm pretty sure, well, the ones I saw, I know definitely could not be made today. Do you find that with the 70s movies that you watch, you think they're movies that there's no way that they would make these type of movies today simply because they're so batshit insane? Definitely. I think there was a freedom and sort of wild artistic way that people attacked anything art-wise in the 70s that can't be matched today. And I think the 70s era of filmmaking is probably my favorite. just seemed like everything was just done with such wild abandon. Not so much a care for how much the movie's going to make. And I think the whole blockbuster thing sort of killed that. It became a money game as opposed to making something cool to put butts in seats. Well, we didn't get to the blockbuster game until, what, Star Wars and Joy. Right. They came along, and then that's when... I would say there there are three films that sort of opened people's eyes to, hey, we can make big money if we do these, which is The Godfather, Jaws, and Star Wars. Yeah. For then, movies were made, it was just these really apeshit crazy movies that you would say, oh my god, people actually made this thing, people actually wrote, (laughs) directed, and started these things? Yeah, I don't think the film I'm about to talk about could be made 
today. I told you about this book that apparently has become the Bible of Hollywood in the last five years, which is called Save the Cat, where everybody has to be relatable in some way. One of the things that makes 70s movies so interesting, a film that I'm probably going to bring up next year in the obscure movies, which is Electric Light and Blue. Yeah. I am. You could not make that film today because the main character is a little bit of a cock. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm mad at you. Why? About Electric Light and Blue. You still have not told me who got killed and why did they get killed? I told you who got killed. <laughs> the drifter guy. Remember they come across the shack and there's the dead guy in the shack? In so, fact, in the but opening, who was he? He was this old, sad guy. Mickey, uh, Mickey Rourke. Peter Robert Blake. Robert Blake. The FBI guy hands <laughs> off. See, you can't even explain it yourself. Well, it's because it's the only film Stop made. scrambling. No, but the, the head detective <laughs> gives... Robert Blake, the job, because Robert Blake's being a dick about I want to be a... Listen, listen, listen. Read my lips. Who got killed and why did he get killed? He got killed in a fight with the other drifter guy who is played by somebody's What famous. other drifter guy? There's another drifter guy. Oh, for Pete's sake. There are two sake. drifter guys in this film. Oh, One kills the other. Is he played by Mickey Fun? Yes, he's... No, no. This is worse than that Humphrey Bogart movie. I, I, I'm dying over here mistaking Mickey Rourke for Robert Blake. I'm going to place each of them in, in, their, in their own roles. I'm trying to think of Robert Blake and Angel Heart. And, yeah. and, 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 and Marvin Sin City. Yeah. <laughs> and of course... wrestler. You know what else I've got in my mind now? Robert Blake and Mickey Rourke in a remake of Twins. Oh, man, that would be fantastic. Oh, that'd be on the money. I'd pay to see that. <laughs> Since you cannot explain Electric Glide and Blue, could you just go ahead and present us with your okay. movie? A little bit of backstory. Instead of just saying you don't know. You I know there is a murder in Electric Eye and Blue. I know there is a murder, but nobody can tell me who got murdered and why he got murdered. He arrests the guy towards the end of the film for the murder. Go on there your, is, it is resolved. Go on your movie, Tom. I first saw this film on WWOR here in New York when, for some reason, WWOR bought a whole bunch of kind of sleazy 70s movies. <laughs> I had forgotten about it for many a year. Until a couple of weeks ago, Des and I are, are exchanging emails, and he said, Oh, I've made my choice, and I've chosen the evictors. And I said, Wait a minute, is that the film with the old people killing off their landlords because they want to stay in their building? And he goes, No, that one's Homebodies. That started me on a quest to find this film because I remember it being kind of creepy and kind of quirky and entertaining. I could not find it on Netflix. I could not find it on DVD. I could not find it on Blu-ray. You could not find it anywhere. But you I could not I eat did. green eggs and ham. Yeah, you could right. not eat them, Sam. But I could tell you who was killed in Electric Eye and Blue and who killed them. I did eventually find it on YouTube. You could not find it in a boat. Could not find it on a motorcycle. You could not find it with um, a goat. <laughs> Go ahead. I did find it on YouTube because, of course, there are these people, especially now that YouTube has lifted the 10-minute limit. Now we've got all these people who are going to their old VHSs and ripping them into digital files and posting them on YouTube for all to enjoy. I found Jim Cotter. The God, entire thing was God on bless those people. Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> I found The Sorcerers, which almost became a thing that was going to be on the show. I found Haunts of the Very Rich, which almost yeah. got on this show, too. Go. I guess we're all scheduled for 2014, but... Yeah. Before I go I any... So. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Before I get any further, 
before we started, I posted on the Better in the Dark Facebook page, which is on Facebook, obviously, and on our Twitter feed, which is at the ITD Show, asking our listeners if they have any favorite 70s horror movies. James Dye wrote in, and he's got a whole list. He says, Martin, let's scare Jessica to death. The Asphyx, The Living Dead at Manchester Moor, Burnt Offerings, Horror yeah. Express, Willard, The Legend of Hell House, mm. Bay of Blood, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, Bad Ronald, Silent Night, Bloody Night, and Tourist Trap, which is definitely oh, about Tourist that Trap, year. yeah. And we're going to reference that in a few minutes. So this film was Homebodies, which was made in 1974 by Larry Yost. I know the name. I don't know where this film takes place, to be honest. I like to think it's probably Los Angeles, but I'm not sure. They seem to go out of their way to not tie it down to any one city. Yeah, it's really hard to tell, isn't it? Yeah. I thought maybe it was a Canadian film, actually, for a while, but I just can't tell. It was filmed in Cincinnati. Okay, well, there we go. Used is very clever in concealing that fact, because who'd want to live in Cincinnati? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Screw it, Ohio! <laughs> it is the story of a group of old pensioners who are living in a house in a really run-down neighborhood. As it is explained by one of the people still living there whose father had originally bought the house way back many, many years ago. It was a different neighborhood when they all moved in. It was a nicer neighborhood, and it was kind of upscale. But throughout the years, it fell into disrepair and ruin. And now a major developer is building luxury apartments, and they're going around condemning and tearing down this block of building. However, something really, really strange starts happening. It sounds like batteries not included. Maddie, played by Paula Truman, a little bit down the road, one of these office buildings is already being built. And she's gotten into the habit of going down every morning with her box of prunes and just watching the construction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One day, one of the construction workers goes over and says, Hey, you got some for me, Grandma? And Maddie gives this guy some prunes. Guy jumps onto a steel beam, motions to get sent up. They start pulling up the beam, but the cable breaks, and he falls to his death. Because of that, the workers walk off. The condemnation of the block is delayed a little bit. Then, there's an accident with an elevator, which ends up frying three people. Cool. So it's delayed a little longer. Then these nice old people that we've spent the last 20 minutes say, to save our house, we need to make more of these things happen. <laughs> One of the reasons I like this film a lot is that Eust spends about 20 minutes building these characters and making us feel sympathetic towards them. Yeah. Well, they're old people. Not just old people. The thing is, for example, you've got the superintendent and his wife, and the mm. superintendent is still painting the front of the house, even though they know it's coming down, because as he puts it, I've been superintendent here for 40 years. I'm not planning on stopping now. Good man. Yeah. You've got the blind gentleman who is a violinist. You've got the one man who, ever since his wife died, he didn't have any purpose until he realized, what i got to do is i got to write the story of our life. And he's been writing this book for the last three years. Oh, okay. Fairly sweet. Yeah, these are all fairly sweet, fairly sympathetic characters, which is one of the reasons why a revelation in the third act kind of doesn't jibe a bit. And it's funny because there are two people that they actually kill. One of them is just a total bitch. 
<laughs> you know who I'm talking about. Makes it easy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she gets killed kind of cleanly, but she spends a long time in dying. But the other guy who has the most memorable death, it's kind of curious because at one point he's talking to the superintendent guy and goes, I see you're a great worker. If we were younger, I would hire you. He's not being a cardboard cutout villain. No. But he's a businessman and he has to get these people out. He gets... This gave me nightmares when I first saw it as a kid. It's fucking brutal. It's brutal. They dump him in a cornerstone in the building site and pump concrete into it. And cool. Bury him in it. He's in the cornerstone. But what's worse is that part of his foot is hanging out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they have to chop it off. Can I just break in here here and give you the top five plot keywords on IMDb? Yes. This is maybe the best top five plot keywords I've ever seen. Murder, stabbing, <laughs> violence, foot cut in two, suffocation, and foot cut in two. <laughs> okay. It's like the track listing for a cannibal corpse record. No, that doesn't make you want to watch it. I don't know what we <laughs> I did not recognize a lot of the act. These are kind of mainly that guy or that woman. The two that would probably be the most recognizable to you, one is Frances Fuller, who plays the daughter of the guy who originally bought the house. The other one is Ruth McDevitt, who goes on, I think, a year later to be a supporting character on the Night Stalker TV show. And Ian Wolfe, too. Yes. He's Ian Wolfe is a great actor. What happens has with any when you have decent people who conspire to commit a murder. <laughs> Somebody's conscience starts working. Yay. Then there's a revelation that these first accidents weren't accidents after all. I didn't like that. I had thought that it was just the one character. The revelation is that it's actually three of the characters. It doesn't jibe with the behavior of one of the characters in the first two acts. Yeah. The other thing that's kind of a little weird about this film is that there are these moments where Yus just decides to become slapstick. The scene where Maddie is trying to drive away the corpse of the... (laughs) Yeah, it's terrible. The the city official who was sent to evict them, that's bad. And there's something that I know what Yus was going for in the final quote-unquote chase scene. Which involves those duck boats. Oh, yeah. Those little paddle boats. Yeah. But it kind of falls flat. What do you make of that ending, Des? You've seen this. Are we talking like the last shot? The last shot. Yeah, I don't get it. I didn't get it either. I liked the ending up until that last shot. Yeah. I liked what was going on there. It really fit with the rest of the film. But that last I'm like, what? (laughs) Why? Why did they do that? It's very strange because there's nothing supernatural about this film. And reintroducing this character when they reintroduce her makes no sense. Except as a supernatural thing. But it's really well done. A lot of good performances. Thankfully, the people, I think the city official is probably the worst of the lot. Yeah. She's <laughs> really bad, but she's not on the screen for very long before she gets her ticket out of the film. It's primarily these six old people. The performances are uniformly excellent. And it features a really creepy and annoying song. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, God. That song just freaks me out. <laughs> Talk about films that they wouldn't make today. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. No. A, a movie with a cast almost solely cast that was 70-year-olds. <laughs> like, you'd never see that. You could do a really great septuagenarian film festival with this and Cocoon. Right. And On Golden Pond. <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, Cocoon is the only movie I can ever think of where they cast yeah. almost the entire cast of Senior Citizens. And even then, you've got Steve Gutenberg. Steve Gutenberg, yeah. yeah. 
Okay. And more importantly, going back to this Save the Cat book, these people, even though they're decent people, they commit horrible things, and the thing is, they're not really punished for it. Even though you spend a lot of time building up the sympathy for these six people, they, and deservedly so, lose it by the end of the film. I can't see if somebody decided to remake this, them doing that. They would intentionally make the three people who survived not be involved at all because we had to have sympathetic characters somewhere in this film. Of the three people who survived this film, one of them is responsible directly for one of the murders. But see, that's what I love about 70s Mm -hmm. horror movies. Matter of fact, 70s movies... Period. They gave you characters. They didn't concern yourself, well, were they going to try to make them likable? They just presented the characters as they are and let us as the viewer make up our minds. Well, do we like them or not? Or do we sympathize with them or not? Do we find them reprehensible? But no matter what, we wanted to see where they were going to go. Exactly. And find out at the end of the movie, well, how is this going to end up? Since for some reason we were looking at Electric Light in Blue. Yeah. Even though the Robert Blake character has some admirable traits, he is a dick. He's a dick, yeah. He, he is. is venal. He is opportunistic. He's he, got a Napoleon complex. He's got a serious Napoleon complex. Yeah. But that makes the film interesting. But he's an interesting character. Yeah. And we want to see where he goes. Exactly. So we follow even though we miss it. Yeah, he's a dick. But if you're going to be a dick, at least be an interesting Right. Guy. I think part of the problem with modern filmmaking is Which... That there's a lot of ways that could be interpreted, yes. now that I think about it. I think part of the problem with modern <laughs> filmmaking is people are afraid to have, to use your phrase, interesting dicks on screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It doesn't sound Things any... you wish you could take back. It doesn't sound any better when you say it. <laughs> yes, I know, I know. I'm going to clip that out and keep it for <laughs> I would rather see a flawed character who is unlike. Why do we love House? House was an unrepentant bastard right. about how, but he was interesting. He was more interesting than Wilson, who was a nice guy. These and miserable people are migrating to television. Yeah, look at our big heroes on television right now. House, what's his name from Breaking Bad? Oh yeah, Mr. White. Yeah, Mr. White. Dexter. Dexter. Yeah, who's a serial killer? Who's a serial killer? Hannibal. Yeah, Hannibal went to TV. Yeah, it all kind of started with Tony Soprano. Yeah, Tony yeah, Soprano. Tony Soprano. Yeah, you, good point. Yeah, until of course Time Warner took our. CBS away, I started watching the repeats of Elementary. That version of Sherlock is not well, Sherlock, a nice person. Well, Sherlock Holmes is the grandfather yeah. of all of these characters. He's antisocial. Yeah. He's sarcastic. He's not very pleasant to be around. But he's interesting because why? He, well, he's the smartest cat in the country. You know, if you come to him, you're going to at least, you're going to be entertained and <laughs> watching this guy. Right. Exactly. Where you can have somebody who's very sweet and nice, but they're boring as a Vanilla cupcake. Exactly. And trust me, when I get to my next film, our hero, oh, he's going to typify that. <laughs> cool. Yeah, Des knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Are we on me now? Yes. What do you have, Derek? I have, for us, is a movie that I did not know about. Of course, I know the director. We have talked about right. him many times before. The great Mario Baba. Who we yeah. praised at great length in our episode covering Danger Diabolic. Yes. My uh, whole episode 300 was dedicated to Mario Baba. 
Yeah, so, and if you guys have not listened to that yet, it would be well worth your time after you finish listening to this to go listen to that episode. I came upon this because apparently there's a whole bunch of Mario Bava movies called the Mario Bava Collection right. that have just been put on Netflix mm-hmm. streaming. I watched Baron Blood, which wasn't too interesting. I watched Five Virgins or something. That, I right. don't know, but it was about four or five of them I watched and they weren't too... Lisa and the Devil, though, was very interesting. And this movie has a very interesting background. Apparently what happened was that the producer, Alfredo Leone, this movie when it was released initially, I've gotten up on the BIT, the Jumbotron, by the way, in his native Italy, Mm -hmm. it was a bomb. And they couldn't find a U.S. distributor for it. It's an entirely different film from the one that we ended up getting. I'm getting to that. When they took it to the Cannes Film Festival, it bombed there. The producer, Alfredo Leone, was so concerned about making his money back that he severely recut this movie and reshot a lot of it. As a matter of fact, he brought in an American actor because it was called The House of Exorcism. Robert Alda. He brought in Robert Alda. Mario Bava himself did not direct the new scenes. He came in, he set up the shots, but then he left. He even tried to convince Elky Sommer not don't to participate. Yeah. yeah, don't do this. It was recut and released in the United States as the House of Exorcism as a direct exorcist ripoff. Of course, mm-hmm. that bomb. Apparently, if you get the Mario Baba collection as a box set, you get one disc where you have Lisa and the Devil and House of Exorcism. Yeah. So you can watch them both and compare them. Now, I have not seen House of Exorcism. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if it's available on Netflix streaming after seeing Lisa and the Devil. I don't care because right. I don't want my memory of this movie to be spoiled because this is a good movie it has a young American tourist played by Elkie Sama who for those of you who don't know back in the 60s she made a whole slew of movies. She was a Swedish, Danish actress. She was a Playboy model. Mm-hmm. Apparently, she's a very brilliant woman because she's still alive. God bless her. Mm-hmm. She's found plenty of success as an artist. And she goes around from country to country studying languages. She speaks ten languages already. So we're not talking about a dumb woman. Right. Acting-wise, she's no Elizabeth Taylor. Mm-hmm. But she does what she does, and she does it very well. She's in a tour group in Toledo, and she... Spain, no, Spain. Ohio. Fuck right. you, Ohio. <laughs> what do you got against Ohio? I don't know. I'm just kidding. The, the two things I'm taking away from this episode is Robert Blake and Ohio. <laughs> Robert Blake in Ohio. With interesting dicks. During the tour group, she's shown this painting of the devil carrying yes. people away. And the devil looks very much like a man she runs into in a shop. She wants to buy a carousel. The owner's shop says, well, you can't buy that. It belongs to this gentleman who is painting a mannequin. And she turns around, and it's our old friend Telly Savalas, right. who looks exactly like the painting of the devil. Right. And he is the devil. She goes outside from the shop, and she's inexplicably lost. She can't find a way, and she's wandering around, and she again runs into Telly Savalas, who directs her back to where she's supposed to go, and she runs into a strange gentleman who looks exactly like the mannequin that Telly Savalas was carrying, but now he's alive. He assaults her because he thinks that he knows her, and he's trying to get her to come with her. She pushes him down the stairs and kills him. Now, it abruptly goes to nighttime, and I'm going someplace with this, folks. Hold on a minute. <laughs> she stops a car, and in the car is these three mysterious people, mm-hmm. a chauffeur, a rich man, cute fat boy singing, Baby, You're a Rich Man, mm-hmm. and his wife. <laughs> and she gets a ride with them. Thurston Howell? No. <laughs> you and your Gilligan's Island fetish. They're taken to a mysterious mansion where it's a blind countess, her son, and their butler, played by Telly Savalas. They stay there for the night, and murder, and madness, and mayhem, and 
bodies changing into mannequins and back into living human beings. And Telly Savalas apparently somehow is manipulating these people and all these events. This is the point I was getting to. The cut. When it cuts from daylight, she's wandering around the suddenly at night. What happens when you're dreaming something and you go from one place to another? You're just there. Right. You don't have any memory of actually going from As one Leonardo place to another. DiCaprio tells us. In oh, Inception. okay. You see where I'm going with yes. this? And this is the power of this movie. This movie is a waking nightmare. It's very surrealistic. It's very much like a dream. Like when she's wandering, trying to find her way back to the square. And right. she can't. We've all had dreams where we're wandering, trying to find something. And we can't get back to where we were. There are things that happen through this movie. People change identities. Mannequins come to life. They go back to being mannequins. There's a mysterious person that's trapped in a room, which turns out to be Lisa herself. Is she the reincarnation of the fiance of the countess's son or is she being manipulated by the devil you don't know the first time i sat there and the best way to watch lisa and the devil the first time you see it don't try to interpret it just watch it and just let it wash over you and your enjoyment of it i think will come up watch it again a second time and then try to make sense of it but the first time you see it just watch it don't even try to figure it out because you can't and then when you get to the ending of the movie again this is a movie that somebody should have given to M. Night Shyamalan and said, see, right. this is how you do a twist ending mm-hmm. with the scene. You've seen it, right, Des? The scene, <laughs> okay, when she gets on the airplane at the end, it changes the whole movie completely. That's how you do a twist ending. Lisa and the Devil, after you finish listening to us go off, go Netflix streaming right. and watch Lisa and the Devil. It's a wonderful movie. Mario Bava, we've talked about him. Right. Des has talked about him. The guy's a genius, and he's one of the few directors that I know that can actually make a movie seem like a dream, which is why I say when you watch this for the first time, don't try to make sense of it, because it's a dream. Just sit and just absorb it. Let a day or two go by, and then watch it again, and then try to connect the dot. It's really reminiscent of Lucio Fulci's The Beyond in that way. Yeah, just, yeah. just a nightmare on screen. That's what I felt like when I was watching it, and Suspiria. Right, I got yeah. the same impression. I was actually thinking it would be an interesting kind of trip triple feature with on one side Carnival of Souls and yeah. on the other side Cemetery Man. Yeah, exactly. It's that type of movie. Down to the fact that you've got this one actor showing up in these different roles. I have to say something. Telly Savalas, one of the things that really cracked me up in this right. is that his devil is sucking on a lollipop. Office <laughs> 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 Lisa lollipop. He said, you sure you don't want a lollipop? There's several times in the And you can tell he's having so much fun playing this role. And between this and On a Majesty's Secret right. Service. These are two of the best roles I've ever seen him play. He's Just great in Horror Express, too. Yeah, yeah. If he had really worked at it, he could have been a horror icon on the level of Vincent right. Price or Peter Cushing. If he had went in that direction, that's what he wanted. Mm-hmm. His devil is menacing, but yet he's charming. He's even funny. Right. On certain occasions. It's a really wonderful performance by him. And Elki Sama, she doesn't really impress me that much as an actress, but in this one, she does what she has to do, and she does it very well. And I really, I cannot recommend this movie highly enough. Lisa and the Devil. Mm-hmm. Please, folks, by all means, watch this movie. It's a 1974 Italian horror film directed by our good friend right. Mario Baba. Also, Elki Summer, insert hottie growl here. <laughs> So, uh, we're back to you now, Des. So, what do you got for us? I'm really impressed with my picks this year. I'm not too happy with what I went with last year. I think I went far too extreme. Really? Uh, I don't yeah. think so. That's the whole point of this, to be extreme. I suppose. But uh, obscure is good. And I think 
This one wasn't actually released until 1980 in the United States, but it is a Spanish production featuring another actor who I have covered on the Obscure Horror Movie episodes, Paul Nashi, who is the Vincent Price or Christopher Lee of Spain. This one's directed by Leon Klemowski, and it is called The People Who Own the Dark. This movie's great because it takes a bunch of genres and just smashes them together. Like, probably my favorite Nashi film, which, for some reason, I have completely forgot. <laughs> well, we know that you <laughs> covered a Nashi film in, I think it was the, was it the first one we did or the second one that we all did together? Might have been the first. The, 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 the Beast and the... No, it was the second one. Because that was the one where we had the Beast count and the Crazy Person count. Oh, okay. <laughs> I forgot about that. We must have done four of these already then, right? We've done four, right? This is I the think four, yeah, this is the fourth one. This yeah. is the fourth one we're doing, yeah. yeah. Wow. There you I'm go. Top <laughs> This movie, well, actually it begins outside of the house at yes. the Soviet embassy and a... I don't know if he's American or Spanish... I guess it doesn't really matter what country these people are from, mm -hmm. but it takes place during the Cold War. This scientist is on, I don't know, vacation. He's pulled over by the police. He's like, oh, shit. And the police say, oh, you just need to call back to the lab. So he stops at this bar, gets a drink, and calls back, and their Soviets are threatening again. And he says, well, I can't do anything about it. Right. Either they're going to do it, or they're just fucking around again. Meanwhile, the Soviet ambassador has left the country. He was supposed to go to this party, but mm -hmm. he sends his assistant instead. They're not sure if him leaving the country is an indication of his actual intention of the country is the bomb or whether that's just part of the bluff. Yeah, I just, I just remembered the other movie that I couldn't remember. Horror Rises from the Two, one of my all-time favorite horror movies. But anyway, so they go to this house and it turns out to be this satanic orgy house that's run by this couple and they hire these models and... These rich and powerful dudes come over and they take drugs in the basement and they say you can have any sexual desire you want. The only thing is you have to actually commit it in front of everybody. So it sets up this really crazy event and then all of a sudden the room starts shaking and they realize that nuclear bombs have gone off outside. <laughs> They're like, holy shit, the nuclear scientist is there, there's a couple doctors there, there's the Russian ambassador's assistant, and then there's Paul Maschi, who's just this rich dude. They're like, holy shit, we have probably 36 hours before... Wasn't the this a Fox sitcom? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was actually called Satanic Orgy House. You remember that Fox sitcom? What was it? <laughs> That would be fantastic. With Bill Moore. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That's another your animation block. We have Satanic Orgy House. <laughs> so they decide that the time they have left before the radiation blows in, they have to go get supplies. So they go into town and discover while they're getting supplies that the inhabitants of the town were all struck blind by the nuclear bomb. One of the guys hesitates while they're trying to see if they can help the people, and blind people start surrounding him, so he starts killing them. He kills six of them with his gun, and then the blind people get pissed off, obviously. So the rich people head back to the mansion and hunker down while nighttime comes and the blind people strike. So it's this bizarre mixture of nuclear war fear film with, I don't know, I Am Legend mixed with Night of the Living Dead mixed with your sort of typical Italian satanic orgy film. Right. <laughs> and it is just bonkers and 
full of bloodshed and has a pretty fantastic ending. It is one of those films that is sort of an extended Twilight Zone episode, mm. but it's done really well, and I just love it. Never let and it be I, said that Paul Nashy shied away from bonkers. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. He thrived on bonkers. <laughs> and I don't think there's an official release for this yet, but I actually got this from the same company I got Beast and the Magic Sword from, and that's Cinema de Bizarre. I think if you, like, buy six, you get four free DVDs or something, so... Woohoo! It's a pretty great website. They have all stuff that, like I said about the town that dreaded sundown, they're not available and they're totally obscure, so... Good fodder for the show. <laughs> yes, that's just crazy. <laughs> it's like the inverse. Remember Blind Alley? The last segment in Tales from the Crypt? Yeah, with the blind dudes. Yeah. And it's the guy that feeds his dog all the prime beef while they got yeah. the gruel. Because I remember they had the car door yeah, full of razor blades. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking of the obverse of that, where it's instead of being the blind people are confined, it's the blind people coming at everybody. Yeah. It's kind of scary. It feels very oppressive and shit. Hot models, satanic rich dudes, blind zombie people who are just totally bloodthirsty and seemingly without end. There seems to be thousands of them. It's pretty awesome because at first you think, oh, a bunch of blind people? Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like a thousand blind people storming a house? That's pretty freaky. Yeah. But does he ever get to the party? <laughs> oh no, that is the party. Oh, that okay. The that party is the Titanic Orgy House. That is the party. See, that sounds like it could be a reality well, TV good. show. Really, there's a Satanic Orgy. You need another party. <laughs> okay, boy, take it. So, I All think, the Satanic Orgies I've been to have been great. I think that's our next reality show, Satanic Orgy House. Yeah, <laughs> because we already had Who Done It. And I loved it because it was a bag of stupid. I watched the last episode, which probably wasn't the smartest thing you do. Yeah, you you have to build up to that stupid. Because Patricia, she's <laughs> been watching the whole thing. And matter of fact, I had the whole series on DVR. I'm going to sit and watch it from the beginning. But I got the impression, it's like what people were telling me. It's Clue. It's totally insanely Clue. You know what the funny thing is? Because they revealed at some point during this run that the victims were chosen at random based on a test that they took after mm -hmm. they shot most of the episode. Which leads me to believe that whoever solved the riddle first was going to be the person who discovered the killer. Whoever solved the riddle second was going to be the killer. So there was no plan whatsoever. Right. It was just whoever. I've never even heard of this. Oh, it was a reality show that just finished airing here in the States. The idea was I think they started out with 12 people are invited to Rue Manor. Dun dun dun. Which is overseen by Giles, played by the husband of Jan from The Office. He's been contracted by a killer to serve these people as they get murdered one by one by a killer. And the, the, the twist is, one of them is the murderer. So it's ten little idiots. Yeah. Only with stupid. <laughs> and it is totally stupid and everybody plays everything to 11. The funniest thing was after the first episode, people were going, oh my goodness, people are actually being killed in this show. Oh so they God. actually had yeah. little segments with the people who were murdered at the very end of every episode, still in full murder makeup, talking to people. My Don't God. worry, I'm not really They bad. had to come back out and say, yeah. no, this is make-believe, it's television. Boy. My favorite character who annoyed me to no end was for the last contestants, which was Lindsay, the girl with the funny teeth, mm -hmm. <laughs> and the strange snort. What is your problem? 
Well, that was part of the fun. It was totally, I love the stupidity of it. It was just totally stupid. We got way off mark. I guess it's my turn now, huh? Yes, it is. <laughs> this one, which I can definitely say was shot in California, so you've been spared some more abuse, Ohio. <laughs> this is from 1978. It's called Blue Sunshine. This was a film that I didn't see till fairly late in life, but I remember seeing the posters for it mm-hmm. when it came out in 78 and being kind of creeped out by it. Because what they were were you had this picture of this normal looking woman saying, This is so and so in 1970. She is a, but she took this, then the an aftershot of her. Totally bald, staring like a maniac. Ah, uh, yeah, I remember. You remember that. these yeah, posters? I remember Lucia, right? So, flash forward about twenty years later, and I finally get around to watching this thing. I'm going to be honest. This is not the best movie in the world. It's probably the least of the six movies we're discussing today. But there is at least one thing in this film that has to be seen to be believed. What's that? Zalman King. Ah, the sleaziest looking and just sleaziest guy on earth in the history of. Oh my gosh! Is this this guy, by the way, goes on. He is perhaps famous to most people for becoming a producer after his brief flirtation with matinee idolhood. In quotations. Okay. For uh, whatever that's worth. Creating a series that many people remember <laughs> called The Red Shoes Diaries, where David Duchovny did voiceovers yeah. for softcore porn. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it, dude. Yeah, that's what it was. It was porn. The <laughs> guy looks like it was Roman a Polanski. It was a Showtime yeah, series. It was a sh- yeah, it was a Showtime. The guy looks like a taller, beefier Roman Polanski. He is... Acts like a taller, beefier Roman Yeah, he is... He goes through this film perpetually goggle-eyed. He acts like a... Uh, tell me if I'm getting any of this wrong. Oh, you're on cue, for sure. 100%. This, this is this movie. It's crazy. And the first act, he is mistaken for the murderer of three women... And the thing is, you can't find a reason that anybody would believe that he's not a murderer. What happens is, back in 1968, ten years prior to when this movie was made, and by the way, it looks like it was made in 1978, for about the amount of money that the three of us have in our pockets. Oh. <laughs> ten, much year, of my end. ten years ago, a bunch of friends went to Stanford College in California. And they took a brand of LSD called Blue Sunshine. Now in 1978, these friends are going through these moments where suddenly they experience, what does the guy call it? Alopecia totalis. Which means that they lose all their hair suddenly and become psychotic murder machines. Only in the 70s. The first person to become a psychotic murder machine is this really bad singer who's singing some sort of Frank Sinatra song in a cabin and then becomes bug-fucking-sane and kills him by throwing three women in a fire. <laughs> yeah. Why three? Because there are three women there, and he kills them all by throwing them in the fire. Cool. He didn't want to leave anyone else. Yes. No witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, Jerry comes back at that time, because Jerry was part of this party before the guy becomes Alopecia Totalis, crazy guy. He's spotted by some truckers, and the truckers think he's the murderer. He and his kind of sort of girlfriend, played by Dipper Winters, who is probably the biggest name in this film besides 
Zalman King. He's constantly bugging her and his best friend, who is a doctor, who we are teased throughout the film may have taken this blue sunshine. Because he was a drug dealer to get through med school. But he never did, so all we get are all these teases. Meanwhile, the person who was dealing all the blue sunshine is now running for Congress. His <laughs> wife goes insane. That's almost the creepiest moment in the film if it wasn't for the fact that the two kids she's terrorizing are not buying it in any way. <laughs> <laughs> Those poor children. Those kids are, are, one of them is actually laughing <laughs> throughout this scene where this bald actress is chasing them with a butcher knife. Again, he's completely on point here. The reason I want people to see this film is to see Zalman King. He is the scariest thing in this movie. He wears these horrible checkered coats. Which were all the rage back in the 70s, Mark. And I love the fact that he threatens people when people kind of imply that he's the murderer. When Zalman King isn't whispering to somebody, yes. he's fucking screaming at him! <laughs> oh my god, yes! What the hell are you doing here? <laughs> That's my Zalman King impression. There we go. Oh my lord. And then we've got Wayne Mulligan, played by Ray Young. Mm -hmm. Oh my god. Who has the whimway for Deborah Winters, Alicia, and kind of sidles up to her and goes, Did you go to Stanford? Have you ever heard of Big Mulligan? Like, that's me. That's me. <laughs> that's me. Great. You like to go shopping, huh? Yes, can say. I'm not making this shit up. I, I uh -huh. think they needed to temper Zalman King's creepiness by yes. making another character slightly more creepy, so I think they made <laughs> yeah, well, that it in the script process. Instead yeah. of making somebody slightly on the sunnier side, they said, no, let's give somebody even creepier than yeah. he Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, so he doesn't look so bad. Well, you know what makes him even better is that you've got all these people surrounding him who are kind of underplaying their parts yeah. either through the fact they can't act very well. In the case of Alice Ghostly, I think she's kind of horrified she's in this movie. Oh, Alice Ghostly, yeah, I remember her. She plays the official representative of the expository news network in this mm. film, telling Zalman King, because you're not a reporter, are you? Alice Ghostly <laughs> always played the nosy neighbor. Yeah. In well, all those plays, 60s sitcoms. That's exactly who she plays. exactly yeah. who she plays. Because there's one murder that takes place off screen, although we see flashes of it. That's probably the creepiest moment in the film. He breaks into the house of the first Alopecia Totalis crazy guy and looking through the house and seeing the blood and then we get little tiny flashbacks and still photos of what happened and there's a parrot in there too yeah, yeah I, the, the <laughs> I love how you said oh well there's a parrot in there <laughs> <laughs> the greatest thing about the parrot is that it'll just fly up to you land on your shoulder and be like right Blue sunshine. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, and then there's the very brief flashbacks of 68, which features the Fleming is the guy's name, the guy who's running for Congress who sold all this bad LSD. <laughs> and they put a blonde wig on him. So he sold a bunch of bad LSD. Did he say, I want to go into politics? Yes. <laughs> I don't even remember the flashback. There's a very brief flashback which shows you right after he discovers... God, I love 70s movies. It's, it's crazy <laughs> as all hell. And then there's that coda at the end where they're trying to pass it off as a real a movie based on a true story. Based on a true story, yeah, okay. Because the climax takes place in a toy store with Wayne Mulligan going all blue sunshine beating the crap out of Zalman King until eventually he becomes triumphant. He gets what he's coming to him, in other words. Nothing's worse than Zalman King triumphant, let me tell you. Oh. <laughs> is this a good movie? No, it is not. <laughs> See, I would probably argue that it's a good movie. Okay. 
Okay, let's hear your argument, Jess. I really enjoy it. I think that it's... Oh, I enjoy it as a... Be- one. Yeah. Sure. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a bizarre and insane film. It's not as good as Scanners or something like that, but it sort of fits in that weird subgenre yeah. of... Well, that stuff that uh, happened in the late 70s where you had all these kind of conspiracy horror films. Yeah, and this is sort of like a weird, was this just a bad batch of acid right. or was this an MK Ultra brainwashing kind of thing but there's a lot of elements that are pretty wide open for the whole universe of this movie <laughs> just like Never gets there were 252 up. confirmed doses that have not been caught up to or whatever at the end. It's pretty, Ooh, pretty awesome. Watch out! <laughs> I have to admit that there are some moments that we go back to the moment with Mrs. Fleming, where if it wasn't for the laughing kids, it'd be kind of creepy because it's shot in this kind of low-rent style where it looks almost documentary-like yeah. at times. What kills that scene is, I think it's the boy. Even boy. though he's saying the lines, he's laughing all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Even you the know, kid knows this is a bunch of bullshit. Please don't kill me. <laughs> Stop it, you're hurting me. <laughs> Even the kid can't keep a straight face. Yeah, it's an experience. The one moment where this woman, and you know it's been coming for the last ten minutes, she kind of rolls her eyes up into her head. and you, First of all, you know it's coming for ten minutes because her natural hair suddenly is replaced by a not very convincing wig. And the way that she suddenly just kind of looks like she's exhausted, her eyes roll into her head and she reaches up and pulls the wig off and there she is in all her alopecia totalis glory. Ball. That's the worst part of this film. Mm-hmm. Is that when people lose all their hair, they lose it like a wig coming off. Right. Like, <laughs> it's like it's their hair falling out. First a whole victim. wig of hair falls off. Yeah. It's not like the first victim where there's still patches yeah. of hair. And it happens. It happens very suddenly. And the guy still has patches all around his head mm-hmm. of hair. Well, that's so that you know he yeah. had hair. <laughs> Fuzzy Wuzzy was a bear. The sign of a great horror film is that it can create a fear for you. And this movie did create a fear for me. Solomon King? Uh, yeah, if Solomon <laughs> King ever walks up to me and pulls my hair, I'm probably going to just like crawl into a fetal position. <laughs> That's what he's You're like, one of them! His doctor buddy. Are you losing your hair? He's like, <laughs> He smacks him around at one point, doesn't he? Are you losing your hair? Doink! The funny thing is, is that we find out that the doctor is still dealing drugs. Yeah. There's that weird scene in the park. Mm -hmm. That's the greatest part. Also, that moment where they're in the operating room and the doctor's Mm -hmm. yelling at his nurse. I had a dental procedure yesterday Mm -hmm. where my doctor got very frustrated with his assistant. And he started, no, I want blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. I'm dead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is it. (laughs) Finally, after all this time, this is how I go out. (laughs) Okay, just to give you an idea of the stellar writing in this film, Mr. Mulligan, Big Mulligan, number 53 or whatever his name was, Mm -hmm. he eventually goes alopecia totalis in a disco. (laughs) Okay. And a man is fleeing the disco and says, There's a bald maniac in there and he's going batshit! Well, it's a club. What do you expect? You dirty bastard, you. I didn't kill anybody. Like hell you did. I didn't kill anybody. Wayne, get me Wayne. You and Wayne. I'll get your Wayne. He's gone crazy from that acid you sold him and so did your wife. Can you guess who did the... <laughs> Zalman King. Zalman King. Gotcha. Yes. Oh, God. And I haven't even mentioned the freaking puppets. 
Oh, Jesus. Yeah, again, I forgot about that. <laughs> the freaking puppets. I just what say, like, why did he about, bring I just going, like, why did he bring up About puppets? midway through, Fleming is asking one of his aides, well, we can get puppets, or we, what was it, puppets or clowns or something? No, it was celebrities or politician puppets. Oh, that's it. Was, it. it was, was always puppets, but it was, yeah. you want pop stars or politicians. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, no politics. Yes. <laughs> Who wants politics when you're running for Congress? God, it's... And what we get are two really kind of creepy celebrity puppets for Barbara Streisand and Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Even more creepier than the ones in that Genesis video? Land of Confusion? I don't know. They're on point. Maybe not creepier, but maybe equal in creepiness. Okay. I'll have to calibrate my puppet meter for that. So I'm warning you, this is not great shakes, but you will not forget this movie. But it's a 70s movie. And it is just insane. And sometimes with 70s movies, you just have to hang on and go for the ride. That's the best way to take them, mm-hmm. folks, as far as I'm concerned. And I should also mention that Jeff Liebman, who wrote and directed this film, is perhaps known for these kind of films that you will not believe you just saw. Probably his most famous film is a <laughs> film called Squirm. Ah. The electricity causes earthworms yeah. to become carnivores. Flesh-eating mutant carnivores. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So there you go. That's your film for my second film. Okay. So it's on me now. Yes, it's on you. Okay, it's on, it's on me. Derek, before you get started, I'd really appreciate it if maybe you brought it back to a more grounded, serious <laughs> film to end with. A more grounded, serious film? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, this is better in the dark. I can't do that. <laughs> I wish I could, Des. I wish I could bring this podcast back to the respectability <laughs> that it deserves and yeah, give yeah. our listeners the gravitas mm-hmm. and the serious movie, film, discussion, review, podcast that they deserve. But I cannot do it because the movie that I'm going to review is The Baby. Oh, no! There are some movies that I like to describe as pure, undiluted, what the fuck? Yes. <laughs> In this pantheon, there are movies such as The Apple, mm-hmm. Miami Connection, mm-hmm. Sharknado. <laughs> Which, as we pointed out, starred my ex-girlfriend. The Baby is a movie that you simply watch, and while you watch it, I guarantee you that you'll be sitting there, as I did the first time I saw it, with your mouth open, and you simply cannot believe what you are watching unfolding on screen, that people actually wrote, produced, and acted in this thing. But here's the thing. It's a hell of a good movie. Okay. (laughs) The baby is crazy. It's insane. Much like the second season of American Horror Story, you just watch it because the thing is progressively crazier and crazier as it goes along. You say, how crazy can this get? Yeah, well, it gets extremely crazy. A little bit of background (laughs) on this. Movie was made in 1973. It was directed by Ted Post. And now here's the weird thing. I watched it yesterday. And yesterday was when we lost Ted Post. He lost Elmore Leonard, too, yesterday. It was really wild because I watched this movie about 8 or 9 o'clock. And then about 11 or 12 o'clock at night, I went online. People were talking about, oh, Ted Post had just passed away. And I said, oh, my God, I just finished watching The Baby. And the other thing about Post was that his big reputation was that he was the guy you got if you wanted a sequel. He did Beneath the Planet of the Apes. 
great. A movie both you and I talked about. He did one of the Dirty Harry movies. Yeah, yeah he did. He did Magnum Force. Yeah, he uh, did Hang 'Em High too, right? Yeah, uh, Hang 'Em High. One of Clint Eastwood's best westerns. The guy he knew his stuff. He was a wonderful director. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was really kind of weird that I had finally seen this movie, which, by the way, I had never heard about before. But people had been telling me for the last couple of days. Mm-hmm. I had said, I'm going to do the obscure horror movie episode. Man, you got to do the baby. Wait a minute, I don't do babies. No, man, watch the baby. I don't watch babies either. I'm not a babysitter. Yes. No, you idiot. The movie, the baby. The I'm the just baby. looking at this poster that you've got up on your screen. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's up on uh, BITD. Jumbotron now. That is one of the craziest scenes in the movie. You just missed the one before that. That was so totally insane, you had to see it to believe it. <laughs> this is the one where they put the babysitter up on the changing table and they beat the shit out of her. But they did that because she was breastfeeding the baby, who was actually a mentally impaired 30-year-old man. Mm-hmm. Oh, back up. Uh-oh. Breaks. I know people out there say, Derek, what did you just say? <laughs> a babysitter breastfeeding yes. a 30-year-old oh, mentally man, impaired man? Yes, I did. And this is why. The baby concerns a social worker named Ann. And Anne has a new case. And the case is concerning the eccentric Wadsworth family, composed of Mrs. Wadsworth and her two daughters, who, to put it mildly, are kind of twisted. There's another member of this family, Baby, who is a 30-year-old mentally impaired man. He doesn't have a name. They just call him Baby. And they treat him as one. He sleeps in the crib. They put him in a playpen when they take him outside, as you can see in that scene right right there. He wears a diaper. They change his diaper. They're getting money from the state to take care of him. Anne takes an interest in this case, especially when she finds out that the former caseworker disappeared under mysterious circumstances. And she wants to get Baby away because as she finds out, this isn't really the best environment for baby. <laughs> I think that the fact that was apparent when you said raising him as a baby. Yeah, he has the mental capacity right. of a child, but they don't do anything to try to bring him out of that. They mm-hmm. keep him in that mental state. He's a fully grown man sitting there, he's in a yeah. diaper. There's a really weird scene <laughs> where his sister changes his diaper, you kind of figure there's a little bit more going on there. This is a really creepy movie. The guy that plays Baby, and I give him a lot of credit, David Manzi. One of the creepiest things is to see a grown person acting like a baby, and I don't know if the baby sounds he makes, if he actually made them. Mm-hmm. I hope to God they were dumb, because if he actually made these baby <laughs> sounds, that is the best job of method acting this side of Robert De Niro in Raging Bull. <laughs> What's that, <laughs> Dad? Yeah, but, I'm sorry. I'm trying to keep it together. I yes. But there is one scene where it's pretty obvious what is happening. Mm-hmm. When Baby wakes up in the middle of the night and he's crying, the other sister, she goes in the room. Not the one that changes the diaper. Because as she emphasizes, that's her job. Dun, dun. Yeah, yeah. But the other sister goes in there one night with Baby. He's having a nightmare and she's calming him down. And the camera slowly pans downward till we see just her leg. And you see her nightgown drop off and you see the side of the crib swing open and it swings close. mercifully uh-huh. now it goes to black <laughs> so Anne is trying now to get baby away from them because she finds out that there's a lot of sordid things going on in this house However, we do know that Anne has an agenda. Whenever reference is made to her husband, Mm -hmm. she very quickly changes the subject. She lets everybody know she's married, and she seemingly makes a big deal about it. But 
when people ask her, what does your husband do? All of a sudden, she becomes very closed mouth and she doesn't want to talk about it. So she has her own agenda as to why she wants to get baby away, which I would not dream of spoiling because the last 15 minutes of this movie will completely change everything you knew about the first 80 minutes you just watched. And I guarantee that. Absolutely. Should you see the baby? Yes, you should. This movie is absolutely batshit insane from start to finish. (laughs) It is crazy. Just the sight of a grown man in a whole movie. They have a party scene where everybody's getting stoned on acid and they're dancing around in that very bad generic 70s type of disco music that you know is phony. They're getting high. And baby is sitting in the middle in a little Lord Fauntleroy suit. (laughs) Rolling around on the floor playing with his toy. Folks, you just have to see the baby. Remember we were talking about earlier about movies that could not get made today? Yeah. There's no way the baby could be made today. Yeah. But I am so glad <laughs> I live in a world where movies like this were once made <laughs> and people could go see them and didn't bat an eye when they right. see it. <laughs> what happened is these kind of borderlands are now the purview of direct-to-DVD. And let me tell you something. Surprisingly enough, this movie has very little actual violence mm-hmm. or blood until the last 15 minutes. But even then... The horror comes from, as we were talking before, what people do to each other. Right. The the way these family members, this woman and her two daughters, the way they conduct themselves. You want to talk about trailer trash? Holy shit. Mm. It is just bizarre. And what they do to this poor guy, the psychosexual incest underpinnings of what goes on, not only with the daughters, but with the mother as well. You get very unpleasant vibes from the way that they handle this grown man and the way that Mm -hmm. they treat him. And you get the definite feeling. And this movie doesn't shy away from that. I give it credit. It says, yeah, something is going on here. And this is maybe what's happening. But there's something going on with the social worker too. And when you find out what it is, you sit there, you say, holy shit. Well, this is the 70s when, of course, everybody in the movie could be fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say this, when you get to the end of the movie, you realize that the person that you thought was the most normal person in the movie is actually the most fucked up person in the movie. The thing that I wanted to look at was, the funny thing is that the ratings for this movie are all over the place. It's rated M for Mature in Australia. It got an X rating in the UK. It was banned in Norway. And PG in the United States. Okay. And I'm going to be honest with you, a movie like this, you know what I would give this movie seriously? And I know people are going to look at me like I'm crazy. I would actually give this an NC-17. (laughs) Really? For the subject matter that is dealing with, there is a strong whiff of incest in this movie. Mm. And it doesn't shy away from that. At the end of the movie, when you get to, and you've seen it, right, Dancer? Yeah. You know what I'm talking it's, about. It's been a long time, but this is the kind of movie that you don't But when you get about. to that final <laughs> shot, and you realize what's been going on all this time, it's like, oh man, this is some twisted stuff that's going on in the baby. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. why I recommend, if you're the type of person that likes twisted stuff, this is the movie for you. <laughs> I recommend it. You can keep your sores. You can keep your paranormal activities. You can keep the Blair Witch. You can keep all that crap. Give me the baby. This is a twisted movie. How many of our episodes somehow end up with one of us saying some variation of give me the baby? (laughs) I was just going to say, we should cut it off there. (laughs) Derek saying, give me the baby. Give me the baby. Thank you, folks. We're out of here. Yeah, yeah, we're out of here. Good night, everybody. (laughs) So, anyway, let us summarize (laughs) as best we can. Six pack of weirdness. 
guys, because this has been a weird group. As best we can. Oh, man. I envy you folks. Beginning with this, let's go over our pick. Well, the Evictors, which after everything we've covered in this episode, feels more like an after-school special about the dangers of not researching your real estate. (laughs) (laughs) And the people who own the dark. Hope he actually made him almost forget the title of his second film. (laughs) Which we have decided to remake as a reality show, Satanic Orgy. (laughs) Coming to you on ABC. (laughs) (laughs) Satanic Orgies. Right after Big Brother. Because I'll be honest with you, if they do a second season of Who Done It, I'm going to apply. Tonight, right after Castle, Satanic Orgies. (laughs) My choices were the 1974 saga of homicidal grannies and grandpas. Homebodies. Another sweet film compared to the rest of the Yes, exactly. I realized that we just went further and further down a rabbit hole in this episode. And the absolute batshit insane bonkers film where you have to wonder who's the bigger threat, the bald homicidal maniacs or Zalman King. And his wicked head of hair. And his honker. Ooh. Yeah, no, the guy has a nose on him. Ooh. That's what she said. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Blue Sunshine, which incidentally... And once again, we go completely Jeff Leapin says that he was offered by two different networks the opportunity to make into a movie with television. Really? But decided against it because of all the cuts that they were going to make. And I'm glad because... We would probably not have gotten the crazy bullshit we got. And it should be said that these movies are all, I think, perfect example of, like Des was saying earlier, that experimentation. People weren't concerned about, okay, well, we got to get that opening weekend. They just wanted to make these crazy, wild, insane movies. There's a reason why we still watch them today and why we're still Mm -hmm. talking about them. My two movies are, of course, Lisa and the Devil, the 1974 Italian horror film directed by Mario Bava, starring Elkie Sommer and Telly Savalas. It's a movie that is a waking nightmare that is very surrealistic, very dark, very mysterious. It's a movie that you will not get the first time you see it. Don't go into watching it with the expectation that you will get it. Just watch it and enjoy it. And my second movie was the movie that I feel is the crown jewel in what we have been talking about, which is The Baby. Directed by Ted Post. Directed by Ted Post. Starring Ruth Roman, who is very notable as Mrs. Wadsworth. The mother of a 30-year-old man who is mentally impaired and who along with her two daughters, treat as a baby. And I mean, when I say baby, he crawls around in a diaper, he sleeps in the crib, he poops in the diaper, he does everything a baby does. That's one of the creepiest things that I think you can see is a grown man who is acting like a baby. This is something not what normal. What creeps me out is that there actually yeah. is a fetish community that does this. Yeah! <laughs> But then again, if there's something in the world, there's probably some people who get sexually turned on by it. But this is a movie that... I bet you there's even people who get sexually turned on by Zalman King. Probably is. There are probably people who get sexually turned on by listening to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) This concludes the final episode of Better in the Dark, folks. How are you doing? (laughs) But this movie is twisted, bizarre, strange... 
this movie to me sums up everything that was great about 70s movie making. You want a marathon, uh, get something like The Apple and The Baby and Miami Connection and watch them all in one Friday or Saturday night and your mind will be sufficiently fried. It's a great movie, trust me. Yeah, okay. But you're going to have to put a towel on your pillow to catch all the leaking brain fluid. <laughs> oh man, this thing it gets progressively crazy and crazier and you just get caught up. Once you get to a certain point in The Baby, you cannot stop watching because you have to see how this is going to end. We will break you. You have no idea. You say, I got to see how this ends. Which to me, that's what makes a movie good. You can say what you want about it being bad or any movie, but any movie, I cannot stop watching until I see how this comes out. It's got you. Let's face it. That's it. (laughs) And that's all a movie really is supposed to do. Make you keep watching until the end. Absolutely. Okay. So it's now time for us to pimp our wares. And of course, we begin with our guest host... That's Reddit. That's me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Dreadmedia.com. Every week, new podcast, plus sometimes extra podcasts. I also do the Dropped D Music Podcast with DW. That will be getting up and going soon, once again. What's the next patient on the docket? The next band is Nine Inch Nails. Ah, okay. Yeah, so in that podcast, we take a band, and each episode is dedicated to reviewing each album by that mm-hmm. band. We've had a long hiatus, but we're going back to do that. But we've got Tool, Offspring, Guns N' Roses, and Faith No More are complete and done and out there if you want to check those out. Other than that, I have a story in How the West Was Weird, Volume 2. I, yeah. I had, you have some Along news with a few other guys I know. of interest to Des, because you know, because I already told you, this morning I finally finished formatting the manuscript for Amazing Alternative Stories. Oh, sweet. I have a story in that. That's right, you do. (laughs) I just got my idea for How the West Was Weird, Volume 3. Mm -hmm. And maybe after we're done recording, I'll run it by you guys. Okay. Because I have a feeling that it's been done before. Mm -hmm. But I can't think of it and I can't find it. So I'll I'll run it by you guys, the premise and stuff, to see if it rings a bell. Okay. And then I just had published in an anthology called... The End Was Not the End, Post-Apocalyptic Fantasy Tales, <laughs> where they take the well-worn tropes of fantasy stories, and they're not necessarily happy endings, and they take place in worlds that are either going to shit or have gone to shit, <laughs> and that was a nice home for my story, which is called Blood and Fire, which features, well, sort of a Magnificent Seven-style collaboration of Vikings versus zombie Vikings. Ooh. So that's that. I'm just working on other stuff too, but nothing else coming down the chute. So that's me. So obviously you're going to hear the pre-recorded spiel after this, but mm-hmm. of course we have a couple of publishers we'd like you to check out, starting with, of course, Pulpworks Press, where the year of Dylan continues. Yep. Right now on sale is the 10th anniversary edition of Dylan and the Voice of Odin. I've got some very good feedback on that. People are saying they enjoying the extra material that's been included in it, and hopefully I will also have a Dylan ebook coming up pretty soon that will be Ooh. available only by ebook. Dylan Ooh. and the Last Rail to Kuzra. So hopefully that'll be coming out pretty soon. Also, I have congratulations on that, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. That's awesome. Also, something a little bit different from me. Also available as an ebook and as a paperback. If you get the paperback, the only difference is it's my name that's on the paperback. But if you get the ebook, it's me writing as Jack Tunney. It's part of the Fight Card series. Is Brooklyn Beatdown. Right. A boxing story set in 1955 Brooklyn. And nice. it's a 
departure for me, but so far, people seem to like it very much. There's that. I think that's it. Yeah. Okay. Pulp Express will also be bringing out Now the West is Weird Volume 3. Apparently, that's going to be a thing. Finally, after all the demands. So I hear. But it's still a ways off, folks, so please be patient. I finished formatting the manuscript, so it does look like we're finally going to see Amazing Alternative Stories. And then we got stuff at Pro Se Press. Fortune McCall is still beating up bad guys in Sovereign City. Well, I'm working on the second one now, The Return of Fortune McCall. Hopefully, if I get on my lazy ass and finish it and maybe we'll see it before the end of the year. Mm-hmm. This one will feature the first meeting between Fortune McCall and Barry Reese's character Lazarus Gray. They meet oh, up okay. in this one for the first time. A lot of people looking forward to that. And finally of course it's time to salute Captain Ron Fortier and Airship 27. And I can say this much. All the illustrations are in house now. Oh okay. So, it's getting closer. Really, I know it's been two years I've been saying this and I'm saying this, but it's, it is going to happen. Don't let them forget. Shadow Legion New Roads to Hell is coming really, really soon. Awesome. And trust me, when it does come out, you're not going to be able to hear the end of it. We haven't heard the end of it for the past two That's years. True, yeah, but the thing is, I've been pretty much relegated to this podcast. I've already set up a podcast tour. I, I think I'm going to Vancouver through podcast lines at one point. You should That's mention also that on your most recent Nocturne Travel Agency, you interviewed Bobby Nash. Yes, I did. We talked a lot about publishing. He had some horror stories to share and some good advice for people who are aspiring writers. Bobby Nash is one of the hardest working writers that I know. And I know him personally. I had the pleasure of meeting him at the first pulp arc and we stay in touch all the time. Mm-hmm. The guy is a very good writer. And not only is he a good writer, but if you're an aspiring writer, he's a person you should get to know because of his business sense and how he treats right. his writing as a business and how he goes about marketing himself. He's really very knowledgeable in that area. The only other person that I can think of is more knowledgeable is Josh Reynolds. Yeah, if you haven't read any of Bobby's stuff, please mm-hmm. give it a try. You will not be disappointed. Coming up on the Nocturne Travel Agency, which is a podcast on an irregular basis where I interview authors, we have, of course, yourself. Yeah, God. Yeah. Ron is going to be interviewed. James Palmer of Mechanoid Press. Yeah, see, there you go. Where we interview got, people that know what they're talking about. Where, by <laughs> the way, Monster Earth 2 will be forthcoming, and I'm going to have a story in there called Giants of Industry. Which they should have had out already. Yeah. I imagine with the thing with Pacific Rim, yeah. there's a lot of interest in stuff like that now. And the most recent one that I recorded features Jack Ketchum. Ah, awesome. Okay. And while I don't want to jinx it just yet, another big, big, big name. One of the greatest storytellers alive today. Mm. And you can put that in your pipe and smoke it. Okay. Who could also kick your ass (laughs) with a martial art that he designed himself. Uh, Yeah, I know exactly. You know exactly, yeah. (laughs) Um, I knew you would know when I dropped that last bomb. One of the only guys who actually rates higher than Jack Ketchum in my books. There you go. Lots of stuff going on. So that's it. Our trip through the 70s. (laughs) And a long, strange trip it has been. With human babies, bald psychopaths. And I think it's very telling that Star Wars came at the end of the 70s. It came out with 77, 78. 77. Yeah, it came out at the end. Because like you were saying earlier, it was Star Wars, Godfather, and Jaws. Kind of like signaled the end of that period of movie making. Yeah, it was most appropriate it came at the end. Although I wonder if they signaled the end of that movie making because they came out at the time that they did. When it was accepted that a film would be in the theaters for months. 
Yeah, well, that was an accident with Jaws. Jaws was never intended to be a big, huge blockbuster yeah. film. Like, that's where they got the word blockbuster from. Right. People would line up around the block to see it. Yeah, because I remember Star Wars when I saw it. It played in the same theater for an entire year. Because I went back to see it about six, eight oh, times. But also, you got to remember that we were coming into the period where the movie studios were going bankrupt and they were being bought by these major corporations. Those were the ones that would say, you got to turn a profit. It's not about artistic expression anymore. Because mm-hmm. what was it? Gulf and Western? They bought, they bought Paramount. They bought Paramount for a while. Paramount is now owned by Sumner Redstone's Viacom. Yeah, Viacom. Huh. Who also owns... Studios now, once we move into the 80s, they weren't their own separate entities anymore. They yeah. were just a division of a larger corporation. And it's even more insane after the 90s. In fact, I'm reading a book that I would recommend to people who are curious about the business of entertainment mm-hmm. called Season Finale. It's actually available as a Kindle ebook for 99 cents now. Mm-hmm. It was written by one of the head executives at what was once the WB. And it talks about that 10 year span where the WB and UPN were going concerns and why they were going concerns and why it all went wrong. It's a real fascinating read if you're interested in media. Yeah, it sounds good. And the thing is, at the recent the Television Critics Association Summit, they have this every summer out mm-hmm. in Sumner Redstone, was doing the presentation for CBS, I think. And somebody brought up the CW, which was the zombified remains of the WB and the UPN. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was very upfront about it. He said, yeah, we lose money on that. But we make the money off of the ancillary of these shows. These shows themselves, during the first run, aren't making any money. But when we get something like a Smallville, the syndication and the DVD sales and all that make us so much money, it's in our best interest to keep the CW going. Well, no show makes any money until yeah. it actually does go into syndication. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much something that's understood yeah. in the industry. A movie is... In uh, fact, one of the know, things they talk about in this thing is how there was a lot of pressure in the early days of UPN. Whenever Paramount would have a show that was intended for another network but was a busted pilot, mm-hmm. they would try to push it onto UPN. Or in the case of well, Sister Sister. Originally, they were trying to really seriously push Sister Sister because mm-hmm. they wanted to get the five years yeah. out of the show. And UPN passed. WB picked it up. It became one of their first legitimate hits. Mm-hmm. And and it just caused bad blood that just never quite went away. It's a very fascinating read about this period, and they explain why it suddenly became in the interest of various movie studios to start their own networks. Interesting. This, of course, had nothing to do with horror. What's the name of it? Okay. Season Finale. That sounds great, actually. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm writing it down now so I can look in for fact, it. if you pick it up and read it, because I know a lot of people talked about how much they liked the previous network kind of overviews we've done. The mm-hmm. one for MTV and the one for NBC. Yeah, those are great. Maybe if after you read the book, I'm almost finished reading the book, we can discuss it in an episode of Better in the Dark. No problem. It sounds so. fascinating. You know we're always yeah. interested in that network stuff because to me that's fascinating. And I don't see how anybody who doesn't watch TV, I don't care about this and that. Yeah, but the process of why you're watching what you're watching mm-hmm. Says a lot about how they think about you as a viewer. Right, yeah. <laughs> and they do, by the way. And you case, need to know this. In case you're wondering, they do confront the whole situation where UPN for a while was being a black themed network. Oh, I'm sure they do. They talk about it head on. They talk about the disaster of Desmond Pfeiffer and all. Yeah. I-, I was talking to somebody not too long ago. He worked at UPN when it was UPN. And he said somebody really needs to write a book about that. And he was talking to me. He said, why don't you do it? 
Mm-hmm. I said, well, I've never written a book like that. And he said, well, I'll work with you. I can't mention his name for, of course, right. certain reasons, but he said somebody really needs to write a book about what really was going yeah, on. Yeah, it period. sounds like a very dysfunctional workplace. Yeah. Um, yeah absolutely. <laughs> but we've gone far afield. Horror! Wow. Wow. <laughs> oh, here's a, yeah, here's a horror. UPN's rating, Circa Night 2000. <laughs> Big whoop. Yeah, we went far off field. Big a network whoop. whose ratings were so bad, they actually renewed Veronica Mars. Mm. <laughs> still, I think to this day, I have to look it up, I think it's to this day still the lowest rated show ever to be renewed for a second season. Wow. But you ought to be glad they made their money for yes, the did. Veronica Mars and project. Yeah, going to be coming out. Kristen Bell will get to play somebody who's not a simpering fool in a romantic comedy yet again. I am so glad. <laughs> Horror! Kristen Bell and romantic comedies! Woo! I am so No wonder she wanted to make it. Yeah! She, she was so desperate, she actually offered to buy the property from Warner Brothers. Yeah, she was going to pay for it. Have you seen her in that show with Don Cheadle? No. Please, don't ever watch that thing. The only reason I figured that they did it was because of the money. Right. And they wanted to work. Because that's a wretched TV show. Horror! <laughs> Being trapped in a Showtime sitcom! <laughs> in the show, the first episode that starts off with a shot of Don Cheadle's hairy butt is not a show. Uh, See, I don't want to. Now, if they start with Kristen, yeah, Bell's I, I'd be all for that. Yes, I'd be all for that. <laughs> we here at Better in the Dark wholly endorse See, Kristen Bell's bare See, ass. you don't really make me want to watch your show when you start out like that. Something <laughs> for the ladies. Yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> on that note, horror. And on Cheadle's ass. And on that note, <laughs> we want to once again thank our guest host, oh my gosh. Desmond Reddick. <laughs> For his time, his knowledge, and his input into this episode, as always. And listen to Dread Media. Yes. Please do. And keep listening to Better in the Dark. Yes. And so, that's it for another episode, folks. Thank you. So, until then, don't give us the baby. Especially if he's like a 30-year-old. Because that's just creepy, man. It's wrong! Good night. Thank you. Good night, guys. Don't watch that movie. Listening to Better in the Dark featuring Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to the real protagonists of Tranquil Tirates, Desmond Reddick, Bill Dave and Paul of Avenger Spotlight, the Zone 4 crew, Earth Station 1, Eric Frome, and of course all the lovely members of the Better in the Dark Facebook page. Better in the Dark has been asked to appear on Satanic Orgy House, but no matter how much money they give us, those goats they want us to use make us nervous. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at Earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at Earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.betterinthedarksite.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at at BITD Show. And check out all the amazing music available at www.bhyphen.com. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. 
All material copyright, Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that there are many, many, many things you can show us to get us to watch your show before you show us Don Cheadle ass. Especially when there's Kristen Bell ass just sitting there unmolested. Congratulations on your wedding, Kristen. And I knew at last me and my baby were about to meet the leader of the... Pack. Well, when I come to, I looked around, and there was the leader, and there was the pack, and over there was my baby, and over there was my baby, and way over there was my baby. Nineteen seventy seven. The nightmare has begun. Blue sunshine.